This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome all our live viewers on the Zoom world. Thank you again so much for uh, for joining the live uh, the live class. Thank you for all who is listening after the live class, wherever you're listening to the recording, whether it's Torah Anytime or any other uh, platform that it exists on. Tonight we are learning Le'ilu Nishmat, Atzila Bat Rabbi David, Avram ben Chaim Yehuda, and Yechezkel ben Avraham. Uh, okay, so let us, let us, let us begin. So we're on the second class on money. Money, 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 money. And today, this is the class that I wasn't, uh, that I was thinking of either doing it first or second. And it turns out that it's a second class, but the, the, and I think rightfully so. The topic of this class is, is the difficulties that people have with money. And when you think of difficulties with money, generally I think people that don't have any money are the ones that have difficulty with money. But when you think about it, it's really not like that. Even the most wealthiest of the wealthiest, they still have this, uh, you know, money difficulties or money problems. And the class is not called poverty. The class is not called someone who doesn't have any money. It's class called someone who has money difficulties. And I, I feel like this really applies to everybody because no matter where you're holding in your life, whether you are a millionaire, whether you are a billionaire, whether you owe a million or a billion dollars, you're still in the same boat of money difficulty because the way of our nature, of human nature, that the Chazal tell us that if you have a hundred, you want two hundred. You have a million, you want two million. You have two hundred million, you want four hundred million. A person always desires and strives for more. So no matter where you are, there's always this, this sort of a stress level or a, a thought process, depending on your personality, obviously, of money. When it comes to, to um, I, I think money is such an important factor that it's such a main factor of stress in the home when there is a lack of money that it that it spills over into the entire home. Whether it is in shalom bayit and marital uh, harmony, whether it is in how you raise your children, whether it's in your own self with your you have anxiety or depression or things like that, you're constantly bombarded with these thoughts, and it, and it makes it a life you know very very stressful. Especially, especially nowadays, where you have uh, the social media aspect, and even if it's not just social media, just the 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 availability of to see how other people live their lives, it makes you feel like you're living maybe not to, you know to the standard that you would want to, based because of what you see in others. So let me try to explain that. In the olden days, if you had you take one of the most poorest people nowadays, and you put them three, four, five hundred years ago. The way they live now to compare to the way they lived four or five hundred years ago. But let's rephrase that to the way that kings lived three, four, five hundred, four or five hundred years ago. The poor people here live better than kings used to live over there. They have heat in their home. They have plumbing in their home. They have the ability to drive a, to to go on a bus or a train with air conditioning with heating. Back then, how did a king travel in a horse and buggy? What did they have fires inside over there? Did they have air conditioning inside the horse and buggy? Did they have shocks in the horse and buggy? So. When you think about, it, and also even if a king had a toilet in the facility, you know, in his in his compound, it wasn't right near his bedroom. Nowadays, you got people that have not only a, a bathroom in their bedroom, they have a shower in the bed. You have so many options, and you have people that what they think they're living as nothing. It's only in comparison to how other people are living. So nowadays, 
there is a lot more stress to make more money because we see what everybody else is, what everybody, how everybody else is living. You see celebrities and how they live, and you'll be like, wait a minute, if they have a 14 bedroom, 25 bathroom, don't ask me why the bathrooms are always more, but you have such a high, you know, then how come by me, I only have X amount of bedrooms, X amount of bathrooms, I don't have an Olympic sized swimming pool, a bowling alley, and a, uh, you know, a tennis court in my backyard, so maybe I'm not up to par. And it, be, it get, makes our life more, more stressful. The problem with this is, is that the person, the people that are, that are very, very stressed with this, they can't even enjoy life. They, even the simple pleasures of life, they can't enjoy because they're so bombarded. They're so holding up with all their difficulties of whatever they're dealing with. Uh, so when you think about it, if let's say a person wakes up in the morning and maybe he didn't make that much money that day, or she didn't do accomplish what she wanted to accomplish, but they prayed, they davened, they learned a little bit of Torah, they did some good deeds, then that is a great day. That is a successful day because we have to think about what is the real purpose of life. Is the real purpose of life that you should be able to buy houses and yachts and, and, and planes? Or the real purpose is to realize that we're here for a short period of time in this world. So what are we gaining in that day to make it successful? Our minds, unfortunately, are so twisted, so turned because of society that we live in is that, you know what a successful day is? If you made a lot of money. If you didn't make a lot of money, that's not a successful day. But we have to think about it the other way around. That if we go and we do the things that we need to do, whether it's praying, whether it's dressing modestly, whether it's going and learning, whether it's going and doing chesed, whatever it is, then that is a successful day. That is a great day. The Pasuk in Devarim, chapter 6, verse 5 and I'm sure everybody knows this pasuk because they should say it every single day. And that is, You're supposed to love your love God with your whole heart, with your whole soul, and with all your means. What's Rashi says, With all your money. You have to love Hashem with all your money. And Chazal says something very, very interesting. It says that it's nearly impossible to exercise self-control when facing a financial loss. It's very difficult. When you're about to, you're, you're, you know, when your emotions overtake you, it's very, very hard to think intellectually. This is so apropos for the dating world. If you get emotionally invested into somebody, then your mind doesn't work intellectually anymore. And you, you, you're not thinking the right way. You're not focusing the right way because you're, you're, you're too bombarded. So if somebody loses a lot of money, their emotions take over them, they're so stressed out, they can't even begin to start thinking the right way and the way that they're supposed to. So people that struggle with financial difficulties, and it could be billionaires that struggle with financial difficulties because they feel like they need to make more, whatever it is, to everybody on their own level, it doesn't mean that they're going through suffering. And by the way, that's something very important. You have somebody who's very wealthy and they're complaining about the money. And you're going to them and be like, what? You're making $12 billion a year. Why are you fetching? Why are you complaining? Why are you crying about? We cannot judge that other person. You don't know what that other person is going about. You'll, you'll think and you'll say, you know what? If I was making $12 billion a year, then I wouldn't worry about it. How do you know? Don't, don't judge somebody else. You don't know what they're going through. So whatever it is, somebody is going and struggling through some sort of financial difficulty. And they ask a simple question that says, why? Hashem, why? Why, God, why can't you give me more money? Chazal tell us, in Medrash in Tehillim, on the 70, 78th chapter of Tehillim, tells, the Chazal tells us that when the man fell from, from Shemaim in the wilderness, in the desert, every day that the man fell down, it was enough food to feed the entire nation, forget this, 2,000 years. Meaning that every time, every day, the man fell from heaven, 
except for Shabbos. Every day it fell from heaven, and it was enough to feed the entire Jewish nation for 2,000 years. And what did they need to do? They only took of what they needed that day. The rest melted in the sun and, and you know, dissipated and, and you know, went away. So the question that the rabbis asked is like, why did God provide so much? Just give us exactly what we need. Why is it that you're downpouring for 2,000 years? You know how much that is? You know how much, how, how much value that is? How much food comes down? And there's only, only a fraction of a fraction that you're actually using? So why did God give so much? Because Hashem wanted to show the Jewish nation on how much bounty, how much Hashem has. And Hashem has the ability, God has the ability to give every single one of us, every single one, not millions, billions, trillions of dollars. So the question is, why doesn't He? Why doesn't God give everybody a ton of money? And the answer is because Hashem gives what a person needs. What yeah, Hashem, only God knows what is good for each person. And if Hashem didn't give it yet, Keyword on yet, there is a reason for that. Imagine you have a very, very rich father. And like I'm talking about rich, rich, old money, rich, rich. And he has a teenage kid and keep on, the teenage kids keep on complaining. Says, you know, dad, why don't you give me more money? And he wants more money. All his friends are getting Ferraris on their 16th birthday. They're getting, you know, you know, all these extra, extravagant types of gifts. He says, why are you not giving me anything? And the father knows, says, listen, says, you're a kid. You're a teenager. You don't even know what a thought is. You didn't even, you're not even, you don't even know how to use your head yet. And I'm going to give you money. What's going to end up with you? Look at all your friends and look what all they're ending up with. Just because a father has the ability to give, it doesn't mean that he would give if he knows that it's not the best thing for the kid. There was a story that it was a week before Pesach and there was a certain Rebbe in a yeshiva that was one of these rabbis that were very, very devoted to teaching. They one of those types that never took a sick day. They were always in class. They were always they're always there. They're always fully focused and never took a break for whatever reason. And this story, by the way, goes back about thirty years. And suddenly, the rebbe says he excuses the uh, you know the boys out you know from from the class, and he runs into the principal's office, and he says, "I need to make a phone call." This is thirty years ago. Before there were cell phones, you have to use a phone call. The principal never saw the rebbe outside, you know, during period when when there, were, there was class. He says, "You know, it must be an emergency." Of course, this rebbe picks up his phone, picks up the principal's phone, calls home, and he starts you know speaking to his wife, asks a few questions, and then he hangs up. He goes back to teach, and he comes back 10 minutes later. And he tells the principal, I need to make another phone call. The principal says, twice in 20, what's going on over here? But of course, he didn't make a phone call, go ahead. And he makes another phone call for about, lasts about a minute, hangs up, and he says, I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I'm done. So the principal goes over to him and he says, listen, he says, you know, I'm sorry, I'm very curious. You never make a phone call. Like, is everything okay? What's going on? So the rabbi goes and tells him, he says, you know, for many, many years, rabbis don't make a lot of money. For many, many years, I've been, this rabbi is telling him, I've been saving a lot, of, I'm saving my money. I have children that are male to Hashem, they're going to go and they're going to get married. I wanted to put some money on the side that would, I would be able to, to make a little bit dent in their, uh, in the wedding cost. So every, every time I get my paycheck, I think of a small amount and I put it on the side. Now where do I set it on the side? He says, he said, I have an old suit and I put it that I don't wear anymore and I put it in the pocket of the old suit. No one knew about this hiding place, not even my wife. 
says, I was teaching class today, and all of a sudden, I remembered, you know how sometimes you're doing something, and suddenly something that someone said, like, a week ago, or an hour ago, or two hours ago, suddenly hits you, and be like, wait a minute, like, what just happened? And he says, I was teaching class, and, so, and I remembered my wife was telling me, she was cleaning for Pesach, it was a week before Pesach, and I had a bunch of old suits, and she said she wanted to donate the suits, or throw it away, whatever, she wanted to get rid of them. And I said, fine, you know, I didn't even think twice about it. And I'm teaching the class, and all of a sudden it pops into my head, wait a minute, the old suits, that's where I keep my money. So I ran out of class, and I said, can I make a phone call? And I asked my wife, I said, did you throw out the suit yet? So she said, yeah, I threw it out, Why? And she's, so he goes over to her and he says, you know, you know, the, I, I've been putting aside money for the past few years to put away for the wedding of our children. And he says, I put the money inside the suit pocket. Can you check if the garbage truck went and took it yet? If not, please take it out. And she says, okay, fine, I'll check. So he said, I hung up the phone and he went back to, to teach. By the way, if I just stop it right here, he didn't even wait on the phone. He's like, okay, fine, you go check. Let me go back and teach. He went back to teach. He said, 10 minutes go by. Figures his wife had enough time. He comes back to um, to call her. He calls her back the second time, and she, what did she tell him? She tells him, I'm sorry, the garbage truck already picked it and threw it out. It was a lost cause. She goes over to him and says, how much money was in there? And he says it was about $4,000. 30 years ago, $4,000 on a rabbi's salary is a lot of money. And this rabbi is telling this to the principal. And the rabbi looks completely calm, completely collected. Like There was like no, no distress on his face. And the principal is getting more distressed than the rabbi. He says, I don't understand, $4,000? How are you not upset? How are you not stressing out? How are you not walking back and forth? You know what the rabbi responds to him? The rabbi goes and says, you know, we have a father in heaven. He knows what he's doing. He says, I trust him and I know that everything that he does is for the best. And I refuse to get upset. And with that, something fascinating happened. This rabbi grabbed the principal's hands and he started breaking out and dance. They started dancing together. Look at a person that doesn't make a lot of money. And he lost everything that he was saving for so many years. A ton of money in his, you know, in his mind, but you know, 30 years ago, $4,000 a rabbi's salary, tremendous amount of money. And you know what? He could have started saying, you know what? It's my wife's fault. Why did she throw it out? She should have checked the pockets. It's my fault. Why didn't I tell my wife? It's my fault. Why didn't I? You know, there's so many things a person that could blame, but he realized if it happened, it must have been it's from Hashem. It must be from Shemaim. And with that, I'm not getting upset. I'm not getting everything that happens. Everything that God does, God does for the best. And he did not lose his cool whatsoever. I want to share with you something that Rabbi David Asher brings down in his book, Living in Munam. He quotes from Chaim Palaji in the Zechir al-Chaim. So it's something fascinating. What amazing chidush. Something that it was worth it for you to listen to this, to come to this. I mean, it was worth it to come to the class and to listen anyways, because you could be in your bed and listen to this. It doesn't matter. But this part, this is something crucial. When I was learning this, I, it, it blew my mind. Says Rechaim Palachi that what happens if a person experiences a loss or some sort of yisurim, some sort of affliction? If a person is able to strengthen himself like a lion and joyfully accept Hashem's decision, then he is guaranteed to get back that which he lost. The Pasuk in Tehillim, chapter 32, verse 10. A, uh, uh, you know, a Pasuk that we've been quoting again and again and you should keep on quoting it because you have to memorize this in your mind. And the Pasuk says, Somebody who trusts in Hashem will be surrounded with chesed, surrounded with kindness. 
And therefore, if somebody maintains his faith, even when suffering a loss or going through some sort of affliction or suffering or pain, he can rest assured that the loss will be restored. Do you know what that is? That if you're going through something bad and you're going through something difficult, but you strengthen yourself, you make yourself strong like a lion, and you joyfully accept of what Hashem has decreed to you for happen right now, guaranteed, guaranteed you're not going to lose out, you're going to get back what you lost. That's a crazy, crazy guarantee. And Rabbi David Asher brings a story for this to, 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 to bring the point home. He said that someone came over to him and he was, uh, he was doing business in China. And uh, before he went on the plane, it's a very long plane ride, and before he went on a, well, depending on where you're coming from, but assuming you're coming from New York or New Jersey, it's a very, very long plane ride. And he said that before he came on, before this businessman went on the plane, someone came over to him and he said, listen, you know, he gave him a CD of, uh, and on the CD was, full of shiurim, lectures on emunah, on faith. And the guy said, listen, you know, you're on a long trip, why don't you listen to it? He says, fine, not a problem. He takes a CD, this is a story going a little bit, you know, back, and he took it, put it on his computer, and he burned it all onto his iPod, uh, back for, you know, in the olden days when everything wasn't on your phone. So he put everything on his iPod, he gets on the plane, he's there with his partner, he puts in his ear, you know, his, his, his headphones, and he starts listening to the first shiur. He got so hooked on it that he was listening for about eight hours straight. Eight hours straight on Shiurim, on lectures of Emunah. And he said that I felt so uplifted after I heard that, as he was telling the rabbi. He says, I felt like Hashem is always, is, is always with it, that everything that happens to me is going to be for the best. The plane lands in China. He gets off, he turns on, he turns on, you know, his phone, he, ch- he checks his email. And he sees, that one of his customers canceled a $500,000 order. The order that they flew down, him and his partner flew down to China to finalize. That's what was canceled while he was on the plane. And they were about to lose a ton, a ton of money. And, you know, after the initial shock sort of wore off, he said, you know, Baruch Hashem, thank God for this. This is also for the best. He now had to figure out how is he going to break his news to his partner. Now he just listened to eight hours of Shoretua. He just listened to eight hours of Emunah and Bitachon. He just listened to eight hours that everything that happens is for the best. So he's ready for this. He's built for this. How is he going to go and he's going to throw this to his partner? So he goes over to his partner and he says, you know, usually when we get an order, we usually prepare everything and we ship it almost immediately. And the partner says, yeah. And he says, you know, but this time, for whatever reason, we waited. And we decided we're going to come to China and then we're going to work on it and then we're going to ship it. He's like, yeah, what are you telling me the story of what we're here? I know. So he goes and the partner goes and he says, look how amazing Hashem is. He's like, you know, like, what are you, ta-? the partner's like, what are you talking about? And the partner who was learning Munai says, you know, I got, just got this email that uh, they, they canceled the order. And the other partner's like, what? Who, what are you talking about? Who canceled the order? What? Like, are you kidding me? They just canceled the order? It's a half a million dollar order. You don't know how much money we're going to be out? And he goes and he starts consoling his, his, his partner. He says, don't worry, Hashem knows what he's doing. Everything is from the, he started consoling, he just learned eight hours on what exactly to say in this situation. So, they decided, what can you do? What's done is done. They figured they're going to do some other work during their trip. They were already in China, they were going to, they need to take care of other things. A couple of days later, they're still in China, they come across a product that they sold, that they wanted to sell to the previous customer that canceled, 
but this was sort of a new version and a 2.0 version of the product. It says, you know what? They took all the specs down. They took some pictures. They send that to the customer and they said, listen, this, there's a new version of the product. They emailed this to the, to the buyer. It says, are you, maybe, maybe you'll be interested in this product. The buyer emails them back and he says, you know what? This is exactly what we're looking for. And he says, yes. And he placed an order for exactly $500,000. Their lost within a few days were fully replenished of what they of what they would have lost. Because when you're going and you're dealing with something and you deal with that amuna, you have that guarantee. That the guarantee that Rachel Palaji goes and says that you will not lose out. The law that what you think that you lost will come right back to you. But the problem is, and that we have to really think about it, is that sometimes you do the right thing. And you still lose money, and you don't see right away the payback. So I want to share with you a story by a person by the name of Reb Moshe Kaufman. This is somebody that lived in Europe during the time during this is actually before World World War One. And when when Moshe over here, when he if you want to see how a person deals with Hebzat Munah and how he deals with his day to day life. You see how, one of the ways to look at it is you see how they incorporate Shabbat. How they incorporate Shabbos to their day-to-day and their Panasah, that's how you can see how much emunah this, this person has. So, this person, Moshe Kaufman, he had a, um, this, this lucrative factory, lucrative business of, uh, textile. He would go and he would sell quilts. And, uh, he produced them and he sold them and he made a very good Panasah. His rule was that when it comes Friday, Friday afternoon already, before Shabbat, when there's plenty and plenty of time is, he closes the store because he wants to go and prepare for Shabbat. He wants to come to Shabbat the right way without just rushing into Shabbat. So one particular Friday, Friday afternoon, he was about to close his doors. He had his hat, he had his coat, he had his jacket on, everything. He was ready to go out and suddenly one of his biggest customers walks in the door. And he says, I want to make a large order of quilts. And Moshe goes up to him and says, listen, can you please come back, you know, after the weekend, you know, I'm about to close. And he says, listen, I'm not going to be that long, you know, let's just, and he starts talking. He says, listen, how much is this one? What's this one? He wanted to make a very, very large order. And he started asking a bunch of questions about the quality, about the quilts, about all the questions that a businessman would go and ask about a certain product. And he's going from one product to another product. Meanwhile, Moshe is looking at his watch and he says, listen, he says, it's getting close to Shabbat. And he says, he says, I don't know what to do. He says, like, this is a big order. Should I, should I close or not? He goes over to him and says, listen. He says, it's getting too late. I'm sorry. I really want to do business with you, but I can't right now. It's the Sabbath. It's, it's a, you know, it's a Jewish day of rest and I have to go prepare. So this very well to do businessman says, listen, he says, I'm one of your best customers. He says, you know, if I want my time, you'll give me my time. Otherwise I'll go somewhere else. And at this point, Moshe's thinking, okay, wait, maybe, maybe I should give him his time. Maybe I should. I don't want to lose this customer. And he's going back and forth, back and forth. This guy's asking questions until finally Moshe decides, hey, you know what? Shabbat is Shabbat. I have to go prepare. He goes over to him and he says, that's, you know, that I'm sorry, you have to go and you have to, you have to leave. So this wealthy man goes and he, and he tells him, the businessman goes and tells him, tells Moshe, I says, listen, if I leave, if I walk out the door, he says, you're never going to see me again. He says, I'm done. You're going to go and you're going to lose me as a customer. Moshe says, goes over to him and says, listen, I don't want to lose you as a customer, but the Sabbath is a Sabbath. And he says, and I'm an observant Jew and I have to go. You want to come back to me afterwards? You're more than welcome. You don't want to come back to me? 
then you don't then you don't have to uh, then you don't have to come back to me. But whatever it is, I have to go and I have to leave right now. And he goes and he he goes over and he starts getting very angry at this customer. And he says, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm done with you. And he leaves. And he left. And Moshe knew that he lost his customer. Moshe goes later on and goes and he says, and he says, you know, how Panasa comes from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, how Panasa comes from Hashem. He says, I'll never lose out. I'll never lose. And he goes and he tells his kid, he says, that Shabbat that I had, when I lost that customer, he says, I don't think I've ever, ever had such a spiritually elevated Shabbat. And you know what? The next week came and the customer didn't come back. And you know what? By the way, this is the end of the story. We don't always see the good. He didn't see the big payback. There wasn't a week later, another customer came in and ordered exactly that amount. No. Stories don't always end that way. Yes, if a story is happening to us, we want to end it that way. We want to end it that within a week, we'll be able to see it. And Bezat Hashem, if we ever in a situation that is a difficult situation, we should all see the Yeshua so quickly that we won't even have to stress out over it. But the truth of the matter is, it doesn't always end that way. But let's continue the story of Moshe Kaufman. Years go by, and he's there in his factory in Berlin, and the, you know, he was doing, he was doing, uh, you know, one of his customers was a person by the name of Mr. Belgart, or Herr Belgart. And he was a very successful businessman, and he purchased items in bulk, and he would go around, and he sold them out throughout Germany. And then World War I hit Europe. And then came the Great Depression. And all his loyal customers, they couldn't make the payments anymore. And obviously, you know, this Moshe Kaufman was losing a lot of money. All of a sudden, this Mr. Belgard comes in. And Mr. Belgard comes in, Moshe Kaufman goes and says, please come sit down, one of his loyal customers. He says he gives him some cake, something to drink. And this uh, Mr. Belgard goes and says, listen, I, ha- I have some bad news. And he says, what's going on? And Mr. Belgar goes and says, you know, the economy is doing very, very bad. It's killing my business. He says, there are so many people that used to pay me so punctually that now they can't pay me anymore. They owe me large sums of money. Many stores have stopped selling the goods. Who is able to go and purchase such high quality merchandise nowadays? There's a, there's a depression. There's no money. And I'm sorry, I can't pay you back. I, t- what, he, he took money, he took uh, the items on credit, and he was going to pay them back. He says, I have so much credit with you, and, and I can't pay you back. So I came back today with all my remaining quilts, my all my remaining fabrics, and I wanted to return it to you. So Mr. Kaufman goes over there and he says, listen, he says, I know it's a hard time, but I don't want to take back anything. He says, you've been a loyal customer for a long time. Just hold it. Hold it until the times improve. But Mr. Bulgar goes and says, I don't know when I'll be able to pay you back, if I'll ever be able to pay you back. And he says, don't worry. He says, when you, you'll pay me back when you're able to. Don't worry. Take your merchandise and try to do business. The, you know, this, this Mr. Bulgar was so, he was like, he's like, you know, he was spilling over the gratitude. He says he was dealing with so many other customers, he's never dealt with somebody like this. And he goes over to Mr. Kaufman, he says, I will never, I won't ever forget this Harry Kaufman. He says, I will never forget what you're doing for me. And then they shook their hands, and they went their separate ways. 
years go by, and Mr. Kaufman, this Mr. Kaufman, this uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Belgard, this 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 German uh, guy, non-Jew, he would go and he would tell his children. He says, if they ever met a Jew, make sure that you go and you help them, especially the Kaufman family. And he went and he told them over what 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 this Mr. Kaufman did for him and his business. Many 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 years go by. World War One finishes. The depression, you know, con- you know, passes over to whatever extent, and comes one day in September 1938. All of a sudden, the Kaufman home is bombarded with these loud, authoritative knocks, and they look through the people and they see this person in a Nazi uniform, and they start fearing. They start shaking. They knew what the Nazis were doing. This is the beginning of World War II, and it's September of 1938. They open the door shaking. They open the door. And there they see this blonde, blue-eyed Nazi soldier with a nicely pressed Nazi uniform. And they open the door and said, you know, can I help you, officer? And the officer introduces himself by the name of Otto Belgart. And he tells them, and he says, my father told me about your family. My father told me about what you did for my family. And he says, I want to come and I want to tell you that recently I've been promoted to lieutenant. And he says, and if you need anything, he says, you come to me and I'll take care of you. Do not hesitate to ask. They were so thankful, the Coffin family went and they served the lieutenant some, you know, some, some coffee, some cape, and they gave him a present of two beautiful sets of down quilts for him and his family as a token of their appreciation. And two months go by, Two months go by, and it was November. And Otto Belgart called, and he told them, and he called the Coffin family, and he goes and he tells them, he says, listen, there is going to be tomorrow morning, there is going to be a raid on your community. There's going to be a raid on their community. Every Jew above the age of 15 Every Jewish male above the age of 15 is going to be rounded up in cattle cars and be shipped to the border of Poland. And Otto goes over and says, make sure that your husband is not home when the raid is taking place. Because otherwise he's going to be rounded up and he's going to send, be sent off to the concentration camp. And Otto goes and says, tell him to go and hide in the hospital. The hospital is not going to be searched. And he hangs up the phone. Mr. Kaufman now goes and hears this information. He's like, what? And so they heard this was going on. And they heard this was going on in other towns. He, what is the first thing that he does? He quickly starts calling all the other families in the town. And he says, listen, there's going to be a Nazi invasion tomorrow. Go run, go hide in the hospital, go ship your kids away from here. And he went and he made a phone call to all 70 of the Jewish Polish families in the area. And many of them listened, and they decided they're going to go out. And they decided that they're not interested; that they're just going to run away. But others, unfortunately, did not listen. Did not believe. He says, "What? It's not true. It's not going to happen. Everything is going to be okay. Let's just stay where we are." The next evening, at six o'clock, when Otto told them there was a knock on the Kaufman door, and the Kaufmans went and they asked. Otto, when he called him the night the night before, and says, please, he says, when you come here, please make sure that you are part 
of the, you know, the entourage that comes into our home. We don't want to risk it anybody else. We know that you'll take care of us. Please make sure that you're here when the search party goes on. And Ada says, don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to come when they're going to come search your home. Six o'clock, there is a loud knock on the door. They open the door. The Nazis don't say anything. They just barge in with their guns pointing and they start searching the entire home looking for the adult males of over 15. But unfortunately, they went, they went from the attic to the basement. They couldn't find a single adult male over 15. And they all started heading out. Meanwhile, Otto, Otto Belgard, the son of Mr. Belgard, goes and hangs back. And he goes over to the Kaufman family and he says, What did you do to me? He says, we've been searching every Jewish family over here. We barely find any Jews. You're killing me over here. You share the information? He says, you're killing me over here. And the coffins couldn't even respond to anything. And Otto went and he, and he left. There was no Jews, you know, to round up. The coffin family later decided, you know, after the Holocaust, they later decided that they want to go and they want to follow up on this Lieutenant Belgarde what happened. And they found out that on Kristallnacht, on the night when the, when the Nazis in went and they burned the, the, the Jewish synagogues, the Jewish shuls, and the Sefer Torah, they wanted to burn a certain shul. It was, a, it was the, I don't know, I'm going to botch up the name, but it was the Aranenberger Strass Synagogue. They wanted to burn it down. But for whatever reason, this lieutenant went and he prevented them by risking his life, preventing them from burning down this. He said, this is going to be a monument. This is a, this is a, a historical site. We can burn it down. He went and he prevented it. Now we look back at this Moshe Kaufman, this businessman, where years ago, over 15 years ago, he went and he did something nice to this businessman. This German non-Jewish businessman, he came and he wanted to go and he wanted to return the merchandise. He says, I can't pay you back. But this Moshe Kaufman says, listen, everything is from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Everything is from God. What do I know that it's not from you? I know that it's not you. Don't worry about it. You take what you need to do. And you know what? He didn't see results right away. In fact, he went and he lost a customer a while back for Shabbat and he didn't see results right away. But 15 years go by. 15 years go by. This non-Jew did not forget what he did. 15 years later, his son goes and his son says, you took care of my father. Now it's my turn to take care of you. And who knows how many Jews were saved because of this Kiddush Hashem. Who knows how much success came because of this Kiddush Hashem. So we know that sometimes it appears that you can, you know, see the result right away. Sometimes you can't, sometimes it's after, sometimes it's after, you know, 15 years. But sometimes you lose money. Sometimes the money goes, sometimes the money goes um, by and you, you know, you feel like it's gone. You know, you're whatever, whether it's a business, whether it's a, whatever a situation, everybody has their own situation and how they lose money. But sometimes it appears that you, you just lose it. And you know something very interesting? Something that, you know, Baruch Hashem, I have the school of merit to speak to a lot of people. And I, I, you know what? I never mentioned this online and I really should. You know, the best way to reach me is really over the phone. Really over the phone. You know, email is good, 
But I have to tell, I have to be honest, like sometimes it takes me well over a month to, re- to respond to all the emails. Well over a month. So, and I apologize for that. But Baruch Hashem, you know, I have the school, I have the merit to, to be able to speak to a lot of people and to, uh, you know, to, to try to help with the, with the help of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to help people in different situations. And obviously money is a very, very common factor that needs to be, uh, you know, needs to be helped with. And one of the interesting things that I've heard throughout the years is, you know, sometimes, you know, many people, especially in America, how do they live? They live paycheck to paycheck. That's a very, very common thing, living from paycheck to paycheck. And sometimes they feel like, you know, they can't save money. Like they want to save money, whether they want to go and buy a car or buy a big product or buy a house, whatever it is, they have different things that they want to go and they want to save money, and they can't. And then something fascinating happens that all of a sudden, from like a different angles, money starts coming in. Whether it is from the government, whether it's from a tax return, whether it is whatever it is, you know, like some, or just stop, they're just able to all of a sudden start saving. So there was once this, this, uh, yeshiva that didn't have enough money to pay the, the principal, uh, the rush yeshiva, the salary. But the, the rush yeshiva decided that he's gonna continue working and not leave and go to a different school to, to, to try to do work anywhere, you know, somewhere else. Even though he desperately needed the money. He needed to support his family. And he didn't get paid from one week to two weeks to three weeks. And the weeks turns into months. And all of a sudden, the end of the year was up. And this Rosh Shiva, he had a wedding for his son. It was fast approaching. And he had to pay, he obligated himself to pay $20,000 towards the expenses. But he didn't have any money. He was he didn't get a paycheck in, in months. And he didn't know how he was gonna go and how he was gonna pay this this bill. A few days before the wedding, the Rosh Hashiva is thinking he's like, I have no I have no idea how I'm gonna make the money. I have no idea how I'm going to go and pay this bill. And a few days before the wedding, there is a knock on the door. And the one of the one of the you know people in charge of the money of the of the yeshiva of the school, they come in. To the, to the Rosh Hashiva's, uh, you know, office, and they give him an envelope. And what's in the envelope? They tell him that they had enough money to go and to pay him back for all the, the you know, the wages that he didn't uh, get paid for the past few months. He opens up the envelope, he looks at the check. How much is the check? Exactly $20,000. Exactly the amount that he had to pay for the wedding expenses in just a few days. And you know what this Rosh Hashiva goes and says? And he says, if I would have gotten that salary on time, I would have spent it on here, and I would have spent it on this bill, on that, but I would have spent it on everything and anything, and rightfully so. He says, but what did Hashem do? Hashem knew that I need to go and spend, and I have $20,000 for my wedding. So Hashem said, listen, I'm going to hold this money for you. I'm not going to give it to you now. And all of a sudden, a few months later, that money came back to him. All of a sudden, the money comes when we don't even realize it. Sometimes you're struggling from month to month, and you don't know how are you going to go, and you want to go, and you need to make a big purchase. You're having a wedding that you need to make. You want to purchase a house, you want to purchase a car, you want to go to whatever it is that you need to do. And you can't seem to make it go by. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere... There is a government program that gives you that over here. And there is, suddenly you see the Siyat HaDashmai and money starts pouring in everywhere. So sometimes we're in a difficult situation. We can't save money from day to day. We start asking Hashem, please, why? What's going on? Come on. You know, just let me put in a few hundred dollars on the side. Let me put in $50 on the side. Let me put in a few thousand dollars to each on their own. It says, let me put in on the side. Why can't I do it? And you can't. 
And little do you know that in a few months or a few years, all of a sudden money is going to come in from different angles. There was once a Hasidic Jew that he went and he bought a lottery ticket. Now this Jew, he, you know, there, there are people that they don't know how to finish a month, meaning that they don't know how to go and, and pay all their bills. This person was so poor, he didn't know even how to start the month. That's how poor he was. And all of a sudden, he buys this lottery ticket, and he gets a phone call, and he says, you're not going to believe it, you won the lottery. Oh, how happy he was. He told his family, and the family were, you know, that night, they went to sleep dreaming. Dreaming about their beautiful future, and they're going to spend their money on this upgrades, and they're going to pay off this debt, and they're going to go on, they're going to go on this vacation that they so want, they have, they're going to give charity, they're going to give tzedakah to this organization. They had so many amazing things that they're going to do with their money. The next day, the father goes, and he collects the money, and they give them this beautiful check, he smiles for the check, they take the pictures, he deposited the check, and they're in seventh heaven. The next day, he gets a phone call. And he gets a phone call from this company, organization, whatever it was, that, uh, you know, that, that gave him the, the lottery winnings. And they started you know, apologizing profusely. They're like, we are so sorry. He's like, what are you sorry for? You just, I just won a tremendous amount of money. And they're like, you don't understand. It says, we made a huge, huge mistake in our end. It says, you didn't win the money. The ticket, the one ticket that was sold after you, that was the one that that uh, that won the, the lottery, not you. And it says, please, we need you to bring back the money. We need to give it to the rightful owner. The family heard this. The family was devastated. They were like, wait a minute, they gave it to us. Do we even have to halakhically even return the money? Do we have to do this? Legally do they have it? They were going through all these questions. Meanwhile, the father doesn't say a word, doesn't, doesn't involve himself in this conversation. He goes to the bank. He gets a check and he brings it back to the office and he returns the he returns the lottery the full lottery money to this to this office, and he comes back home, and the children see him and say like you know like Tati where did you go Daddy where did you go He says I want to return the money, and they see him completely calm completely serene like no issues, and he's, they're like I, I don't get it you know Tati Daddy aren't you upset, and the father goes why should I be upset, he says this was clearly this wasn't Bashar for us this wasn't meant for us to own that money. So the children says, so why did God give it to us? If it wasn't for us, why did God give it to us? So the father answered a brilliant answer. I know I said before that if you came to the class just to hear the last thing, that was worth it. But the truth is, if you came to hear this, this is worth it. There's a double whammy today. And the father goes and he says, you know, sometimes there's a decree. There's a gzerah from Shemaim, from heaven. That a person needs to leave this world. And God will cause this person to lose his entire fortune instead of going and taking him away from this world. Instead of this person dying this year, God will decide, let me make him lose his money. And therefore, there's the Gemara in the Darim, page 64, B goes and tells us that an Ani, a poor person, is considered as if he's dead. So he's considered as if he's dead, and the Gzerah, the decree was, 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 uh, you know, was fulfilled. So sometimes a person needs to die, and instead of dying, God takes away his money, and that's considered as if he died. But the father says, says, well, we're already poor. We don't have any money. There's no fortune for our God to take back. So there's no way for God to retract a decree. So what did God do in His infinite, infinite kindness? 
God gave us amount of this money for a short period of time. And then he took it away. He says, I lost all the money, but I'm alive. So instead of being disappointed, I'm really dancing with Simcha. And you know something so fundamental, how many people almost get engaged? How many people almost get a job that they wanted? How many people almost start a business? How many people almost get pregnant? How many people almost get healthy and then it doesn't pan out? It doesn't work out. It gets broken off. And be like, God, why? Really? Like, why did you need to put me through this? Just like, I don't need the headache. I don't need the heartache. Just like, why almost give it to me only to take it away? And the answer is, is that unfortunately that person needed to go through something, something difficult. So the way that God goes and His infinite mercy, Hashem goes and He almost gives it to you. Or He gives it to you. But then He quickly takes it away. So you know what? Instead of losing something that you had for a long time, or instead of getting a very bad decree, God gives you something and quickly takes it away. Or God makes you think that you're going to get something and then takes it away. How amazing our life would be if we really think this way. You know, the Briskorov, I want to share with you a story with the Briskorov. The Briskorov, when he got engaged, he received a very, very, very large dowry. He received a lot of money. And this was enough money that he could live comfortably the rest of his life. And he decided that right after he got married, he took this amount of this large amount of money and he bought a tremendous amount of houses, buildings in a certain area in Warsaw. And the, you know, time goes by and the prices, the property prices go up. And he was advised by his advisors, says, you know what, sell the houses, sell the buildings and you will make a significant uh, significant income, and with that, you know, invest elsewhere. So I find he met with a potential buyer, and they were about to close the deal, and for whatever reason, the last minute, the deal didn't go through. In the meantime, World War I broke out, and property prices soared even higher. Now, the rabbi, the rabbi decided, the biscuit rabbi decided, now was the time to sell. And he goes, and he was going to go sell the house. So he meets with a certain buyer, they negotiate on the price, the price, you know, the, the, you know, everything is negotiated, and the deal is closed. And they went to get the title transferred from the rabbi's name to this new buyer's name. But when they went to get the title transferred, they saw that the, the properties were not on the rabbi's name. They were like, what are you talking about? Like, it's my properties. He says, no, there's somebody's other name on this property. He says, whose name it is? And they give them a certain name, so the rabbi started investigating it. He says, he calls up this stranger to come over to his office. The stranger comes in and he says, I don't understand. He says, how are you on the deed, on the, on the title of all my properties? And this, this, uh, you know, person who was on the, on, you know, on the deed, on the title, he starts breaking down in tears. And he says, you know, I was the potential buyer from before the war. And he said, you know, when the deal was called off, he says, you know, I did something that I shouldn't have done. And he starts crying. And he says, you know, I forged the rabbi's signature. And I transferred the title to my name. And then I took those houses, I took those buildings, and I sold it to somebody else. He says, unfortunately, he says, meanwhile, I lost everything. I don't have any money. He says, if I would have money, I would pay it back to you every single penny. But I don't even have a penny to pay back to you. But he goes over to the rabbi and he says, I'm so, I haven't slept in years. I know this is my fault. If you want, turn me over to the police. You know, let me do the time. I, I know I deserve it. 
the rabbi goes and he says, how could I turn over a fellow Jew to the police? And the rabbi decided he's not going to do anything. But the rabbi right now, he lost all his property. He lost his entire dowry. He felt as if the ground beneath him opened him up and swallowed him. And he decided he needed some chizuk. He needed some strengthening. And he went, goes into the study. He locks the door. And he spends two hours studying Shar HaBitachon in the Chavot HaLavavot. And when he comes out of the room two hours later, his first comment was, he says, until now I thought I was a rich man. He says, but now, now I am truly rich. And the Rav goes on to explain. And there's a Pasuk in Tehillim, chapter 27, verse 14. It says, Kaveh El Hashem, hope, trust to God, Chazak ve'ametz libecha, strengthen, you know, be strong and strengthen your heart, fill it with courage, ve'kaveh El Hashem, and hope to God again. Says the Briskorav, says, why is it that the Pasuk repeats, Kaveh El Hashem, that's saying once, being meaning that trust in Hashem once, then it says, Chazak ve'ametz libecha, and then it finishes off, Kaveh El Hashem, again, the same words that it started at the beginning. Why does it say Kaveh El Hashem twice? Why did it say trust in Hashem once, and then trust in Hashem again? So he goes over, the rabbi goes and explains, says there was once a king. And the king met his friend. And he noticed that his friend was very, very depressed, very, very anxious, depressed, like he had a very, very serious face. So he goes over to his friend and says, what's going on with you? What's wrong? And he says, listen, you know, I have such a difficult time with Panasah. Like this money situation is really stressing me out. And the king says, don't worry. He says, I'm the king, I own everything. He says, here, he gave him a small fortune. He says, go and invest it. Invest it, and this will be, you'll be able to live off the investment. So the guy thinks him, he takes this investment, he invests it, and they, 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 sep- they go on their separate ways. Sometime goes by, the king walks back, and he sees his good friend over there. The friend that he gave him a nice amount of money to go and to invest that. And he sees that this friend is, is, is very down, depressed. Again, the same face that he saw you know, a while back. And he says, the king goes over there and says, what's going on? And he says, what's wrong? And he says, you don't understand. He says, I invested it, and I, not one thing wrong went wrong. Everything that could have went wrong, went wrong. He says, I lost everything. So the king says, listen. He says, you know what? Maybe your forte is not investments. He says, you know what? Let me give you some property to rent out. And now the guy's saying, you know, like, you're going to give me some property, but who says I'm going to be able to get rentals? Who says I'm going to be able to go and find somebody to go and, and, and pay rent? And even if they do, who says they're going to pay on time? He says, that's not going to give me money. So the king says, fine, you know what? Let me give you a farmland. You go and you make your living a farm. And the guy's like, you know, but that's not secured either. Like, you know, who says if it's going to rain? Who says if I'm going to have the right property? Like, that's not going to help me. And the king says, you know what? He says, there's a certain chain of factories that I have. I'm going to give you these, these factories. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, this attempt failed as well. And from one thing after the next, the king had to admit finally. He says, listen, there's only so much that I could give you. He says, you're not going to be satisfied, you're not going to be relaxed, and there's nothing else that I could give you. This is, the briskorov goes on and he says, you know, the Pasuk and Tilim says, Kaveh Hashem, hope to Hashem, and then it finishes off the Kaveh Hashem, hope to Hashem twice. He says, you want to know why it says twice? Because, says the briskorov when a Jewish person goes and puts his bitachon, not in a God, he gains double. Double the bitachon. Because you know what happens? He says, when a person's kaveh Hashem, when a person goes and hope and trusts to God, you know what happened? God sends him even more bitachon. 
the pasuk ends off with kaveil Hashem. It's two kaveil Hashem. Well, you know what? We want to know why? Because once you start having bitachon and emunah in God, God will send you even more emunah and bitachon. A bonus. You're going to get a present. You're going to get a prize. And this is why the briskorov goes and he leaves his room after two hours. He lost everything. And he says, you know what? Until this time, I thought I was wealthy. Until this time, I thought I was rich. But now I know that now I am rich. He says, you want to know why? Because what makes a person rich? What makes a person rich is one of the things you don't have to worry about anything. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. You have enough money. Okay, fine. So something bad happens, you're able to cover it. Okay, fine. So you're not, you're not making a sale over here, you're able to cover it. You have a big bill that comes up over here, you're able to cover it. This guy wants to see you, you're able to cover it. When you're wealthy, you have, you know, you feel you're covered. You're taken care of. And you feel relaxed. A poor person doesn't feel covered, doesn't feel relaxed. Says, how am I going to pay rent? How am I going to pay the mortgage? How am I going to pay the grocery bill? How am I going to pay tuition? How am I going to pay if someone goes after me? Like, what am I going to do? I have nothing. And that's the worry of a poor person. But a rich person doesn't have that worry. Says, but what happens when you have a poor person that lives with a munah and bitachon? What happens if you have a poor person that goes and lives his life with faith knowing that everything is from God? That poor person doesn't worry about tomorrow. Because you want to know what? If you have a rich person, a wealthy person, then yes, maybe he's not worrying about how he's going to pay his bills. Maybe he's not worrying on how he's going to pay his mortgages. Maybe he's not worrying on how he's going to go and place for his vacations. But you know what? He still has a worry. Like what happens if someone comes after him? What happens if his business fails? What happens? Blah, blah, blah. There's still a worry. But a poor person who has a munami tachon says, what am I going to worry about? There's nothing else other than God. If there's nothing else other than God, then what do I care? What well, doesn't matter? You know, it doesn't matter what's going on over here. It says the briskerov. He says, you know, until now I thought I was wealthy. Why? Because I didn't have anything to worry about. He says, but now that I learned Shabbatachon the way that I needed to, the way that I felt it, now I'm a wealthy man. Now I am not worried. I want to share with you something I read a few weeks ago from Rabbi Elimelech Biederman. Something fast. And, and you know, the, the, the topic of this was, you know, someone who doesn't have a lot of money. And there's, there's a Gemara in Psachim that goes and says that there was Rabbi Yosef, the son of Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, passed away. And he came back to life. And he said, well, you know, what did you see when you passed away? And he goes and he says, ra'isi. I saw an upside down world. So the people that were valued in this world were held very lowly in that world. And the people that were not held highly in this world, they were held up in such value in the next world. And the Rabbi Lamech Peterman goes on and he goes and explains, says, you know, in this world... Who gets the honor? Who gets the kavod? Generally, people that are very wealthy. But in the world of truth, it could be the opposite. Now, not that being said, you have to realize that the wealthy can earn a very, very, very high place in Olam Abba. They can earn a very, very high place. They use their money for the right thing. They support the poor, the poor. They support Torah. They do the right thing, and they will go, and they will really reach the highest level. And that's not really the focus of what we're speaking about right now. The focus is, is the flip side. The people that don't make a lot of money. The people that can't finish the month. Unfortunately, how do other people look at them? They look down at them. 
They were not successful. They were not able to succeed in Panasa in this world. For whatever reason, yet. Bezal Hashem Hashem should help every single one of us, whoever it is that needs help, should, HaKadosh Baruch should help us, Ad Blidai. But you look at them as not successful. And it looks like, oh, it looks like their, you know, their life wasn't successful. They weren't able to go and live a high-end lifestyle. When the Chafetz Chaim's Rebetzin, when his wife was Niftar, passed away, the Chafetz Chaim goes over to the Hever Kadisha and he says he wants his wife to be buried next to a poor woman. Why? Because there's a Pasuk in Tehillim, chapter 109, verse 31. It says, It says, For Hashem will stand to the right of the needy, and save them from those who judge his soul. Meaning that God is on the right of the people that are poor, the people that are needy. Now the Pasuk doesn't say this to righteous people. It doesn't say that God's going to be to the right, only specifically to the poor people. Rav Shlomo Kluger, when, you know, when he, when he was going, when he was mentioning his, his you know, his will to, to his uh, people, he said, you know what he told him? He says he wants to be buried next to a poor person. And he wanted, he made a caveat, obviously, the poor person should have acted honorably according to the B'dayach Torah during his lifetime. But he wanted to be buried next to a poor person. He could have asked to be buried next to a big tzaddik, and guess what? He was a gadol, he was a tzaddik, he would have been buried next to whoever he would have requested. But Rabbi Shlomo Kluger said, no, I want to go and want to be buried next to what? Someone who was poor. Why? Because the humility of the poor, their eyes is always up to Shemayim, is always up to God. It says the Mesilat Yisharim, says that everything in the world, the good, the bad, it's all a test for mankind. You have poverty on one side, and you have wealth on the other side. And everything is a test. You could become, you know, like poverty is a great, great test. You could become angry at God for not giving you more. Some people lose their peace of mind. They're not able to go to sleep. They're constantly worrying. They unfortunately, maybe they resort to stealing. But there are those that are fortunate enough that I've gone through this test and they've passed this test. With that, oh, how happy should they be with their lot? There was a single boy that one time went and asked the Chavetz Chaim about a certain shidduch. So the Chavetz Chaim went and says, go and visit the family's home. And tell me, report back to me. So the boy goes, visit the family's home, goes back to the Chavetz Chaim. And he goes to the Chavetz Chaim, he says, you don't understand this home. He says, this home, the floor wasn't even tiled. The roof was leaking. They didn't even have any cheers. You know how they sat? They went and they had to take off crates from milk and they turned it up and they sat on the crates. And the Chafetz Chaim is listening to this. And you know what the Chafetz Chaim responds? And he's like, good, good. You know, there's, there's another, tell me another Maila. Tell me another good quality of this family. Meaning the Chafetz Chaim went and he saw this as a good quality. The, the single guy was going and saying, you know what, look how bad it is. They don't even have a roof. They don't even have a floor. They sit on crates. The Chavetz Chaim says, that's amazing. What else good did you notice about them? He sees this as an amazing thing. And in fact, the Chavetz Chaim himself, he married a poor girl. And in retrospect, he goes and he says that marrying a poor girl was the best thing for him. Because his wife went, worked, earned money working in the store. And this, the Chavetz Chaim went and he, and he spent his time devoted to learning Torah. And the Chavetz Chaim goes and says that he had a friend who married a girl that had a lot of money and went into business. And unfortunately, he lost a lot, a lot of money. And the Chafetz Chaim goes and he says, 
you know, he lost this world and he lost the next world. He was an yeshiva, he was a good guy, he was a guy that he was destined for greatness, but unfortunately, he went into the business world and he lost all his money. He did, as they say in Yiddish, nishtahein, nishtahein. They didn't get not here and not in this world and not in the next world. He lost everything. He lost everything. Says the Chafetz Chaim, says how lucky I was that I was able to go and I was able to marry a poor person, that I was able to focus and spend my life learning Torah and spending and learning Torah. And the Chafetz Chaim, a gadol to this day, every, what house doesn't have the Mishnah Boah? There's not a single house from religious house that I could tell you that does not have a Mishnah Boah. The entire world he spent Torah to. There was a poor man that came to the Chafetz Chaim and he complained about his poverty. And the Chafetz Chaim goes and tells him, he says, you know, when you're going to get into Shemayim, when you're going to get into heaven, and you're going to stand before the heavenly court, you're going to be standing before the Bezdin Shalmala, and God is going to go, and you know where God is going to be? God is going to be on your right side. He is going to save you from judgment. What could be better than that? The Chafetz Chaim goes and explains, says, let's say you studied a lot of Rambam, Maimonides. And therefore you merit that when you come up to the next world, the Rambam Maimonides is going to come and he's going to defend you. He is going to advocate on your behalf. And that's great. How great and how powerful that is in the next world. But what happens? Rambam was a Rishon. Maimonides was a Rishon. What happens if another Rishon comes and disagrees? What happens if the Ravid, let's say, comes and disagrees with the Rambam and he says, you know what, maybe you don't deserve X, Y, and Z. He says, what will you do then? There's a machloket. There's a machloket to Shonim. What are you going to do? So maybe you could say that you'll earn a merit of Amora, which is higher than a Rishon. He says, but then you have a Tana, which is higher than Amora. And he says, let's say you merit a Tana, but then maybe you have a Navi that's higher than a Tana. So like, what are you going to do? How are you going? You can never get higher. But he says, well, you want to know what's the highest level, the highest advocate that you could have? And that is when you have God advocating on your right side. He says, yes, you are poor. Yes, you had a difficult life. But you have God on your right-hand side advocating for you. He says, can you get any better than that? He says, let's say the biggest rabbi in the world comes and says, you know, disagrees with whatever it is that the judgment is. He says, but you have God. Nobody can disagree with God. He says, when you have Hashem that will go and testify for you, nobody can fight against you. Nobody could go and go against you. Says the Dubdamagid. There was a poor person and a wealthy person. They were called to trial against each other. The rich person, he had money, and he decided that he's going to hire a, an expensive lawyer. The poor person, unfortunately, couldn't afford the lawyer. So he goes and he tries to finagle whatever he can. He couldn't get anything. But what happened was is that the judge that was presiding over the case, he was a relative of this poor person. And one day, a few weeks go by, the court case is stretching out, and the poor person and the wealthy person meet in the street. And the poor person goes up to the wealthy person and says, I'm so jealous of you. And he says, why are you jealous of me? And he says, you are able to hire the best lawyer. You are able to hire such a good lawyer, I am not able to hire anybody. And the wealthy person says, you're jealous of me? He says, I'm jealous of you! The poor person says, jealous of me? Why are you jealous of me for? He says, I don't have a lawyer. And the rich man is going and says, yes, you don't have a lawyer, but the judge is your relative. The judge is going to advocate for you. The judge is going to have mercy on you. He says, let's say somebody's going and struggling through financial difficulty. But you know what? You have a poor person over there says, says the Chavetz Chaim, you can have God on your right hand side. He is going to be your strongest support. So yes, 
We're not asking for this test. We don't want the test of poverty. And may HaKadosh Baruch go and help us and the entire Klaus that we should never know from such things. We should all have tremendous amount of wealth. Adibli die. But if the situation arises, we have to know the correct outlook. And I want to finish off with one final story. That is, there was once this poor person, a water carrier, that he did not, like things were just not working out for him. Like he one time had such a bad day that, you know, his back was killing him. He was carrying the water. The, you know, his customers were screaming at him, look at you, you're nothing. All you could do is just your schlep water, you carry water, that's all you're good for. And he just had it. And he came to a point of emotional break. And he just was going and he was, you know, was, was carrying the water until he just like, his emotions took over and he just broke down. He goes over to the side of the road and he starts bawling. He starts crying. He can't control himself. He says, what's going on? And he starts, he wasn't that such a religious man, but he starts crying to God. And he says, I'm so broken. I got nothing, God. He says, I barely, I work, I schlep, I kill myself for a little bit of water and a piece of bread. And he says, you know, my back is killing me. I'm getting screamed at from everybody. I'm done. God, I'm done. I have nothing. And he starts breaking down to God, talking to God, please, please help me. In his tears, he's so exhausted. He's crying. He's so exhausted that he just passes out. He falls asleep. While he was sleeping, he has a dream. And he sees this heavenly angel comes and approaches him. And they say, like, you know what? Heaven has hurt your prayers. They hurt your, they heard your cries and you have one wish. You have one wish and it will be granted. This water carrier, without a blink of an eye, he goes and he says, whatever I touch, I want to turn to gold. This spiritual angel goes over to this water carrier and he says, done and done. Touches him on the shoulder, feels like a shock that goes through his body, and he wakes up. He wakes up, and his dream is so vivid, and he says, wait a minute, is this really true? He runs over to the nearest rock, and he touches it. And guess what happens? The rock turns into solid gold, and he tries to, it's so heavy. He's like, what? you got to be kidding me. He takes his rock, he throws, takes his pails, empties out the water, puts his rock into his pail. He runs over to another rock. He touches the other rock and the rock turns into gold. He takes it and he puts it onto his pail. And he starts touching all the rocks that he can find nearby. He puts it on his pail. He is ecstatic. He is happy. He throws on the pails. He throws on the stick and he starts walking home. Meanwhile, gold is very heavy, especially solid gold. And he's getting it. It's heavier. It's heavier. And he starts, he's like, I can't even make it to my house. And then all of a sudden he starts thinking, he's like, wait a minute. He says, why am I schlepping? Why am I carrying on my back all this I could just go home and touch the rocks near my front porch and that will turn into gold. He takes his pail full of, and, and his bucket full of gold. He chucks it to the side of the road and he runs straight home. Makes it home in no time. He runs home and he starts touching everything into gold and rocks are turning to gold and he touches his foundation. His foundation turns to gold. His door turns into gold. His walls turn to gold. His window. Everything turns into solid gold. Meanwhile, there's a huge commotion in town. The poorest person in town, he has a miracle worker. He's able to touch something and it turns into gold and everybody's going and they're crowding around. They're looking at this amazing scene. And this guy is touching and touching and it's turning into gold. In an instant. He went from being the poorest person to the wealthiest person in town. And all this work, he's turning and he's showing and he's... All of a sudden he starts getting parched. He gets a little bit thirsty, you know. Turning things into gold makes you, uh, tires you out a little bit. 
and he decides he needs a drink. He runs over, he has a little bit of water, he scoops up the water. The second that the water touches his lip, guess what happens? It turns into gold. And he's like, what? He takes another cup, puts it into water, it turns into gold. And he calls over his friend, he says, quickly come, pour water directly into my mouth, this way I could drink it. But guess what happens? The second that the water touches his lips, it turns into gold. And he tries to eat a fruit. Maybe that will work. It turns into gold. He tries to eat this. He tries to eat... Nothing works. Everything that he touches turns into gold. All of a sudden, he realizes his situation. And he sits down in the corner. And he's like, what's going to be? He says, what good is all this money? What good is all this gold? Is If everything I touch is going to turn into gold. I can't eat. I can't survive. I'm not going to survive another few more days. How am I going to be able to... I'm not going to be able to live off this money. I'm not going to be able to do anything. And he starts crying again. He says, God, he says, what are you doing to me? He says, what is this worth to me if I can't drink water? And he's crying and he's crying and he's crying. And he falls asleep. And he wakes up again. And guess where he is? He's back on the road where he was before. He has this pail of water right beside him. And he looks at the water. He runs over to the water, he puts his hand inside and he starts drinking, thinking that it's going to turn into gold. And he puts the water into his mouth and it turns into water. And he's like, oh, he makes a bracha and he starts, and he starts drinking the water and he says, oh, how much more is this worth than gold? He is so parched, he's so thirsty and he quenches his thirst. And he goes and he says, thank you God for letting me drink this water. How amazing is this water? You know, how many of us actually appreciate what we have? Hopefully a lot. Hopefully a lot. But how, do we realize the power of our eyes? If somebody comes over to you and says, listen, I'll pay you $10 million. You gave me just one eye. Would you do it? Somebody comes and says, I'll give you $50 billion. Give me both of your eyes. Would you do it? We have eyes. We have the ability to take a drink of water. When you're thirsty and you take a drink of water, is there anything better than that? Do we realize what we actually have? Just imagine you have, look at this guy who thought that he could touch anything and it will turn into gold. And he thought this was going to be the answer to his problems. But you know what? No. That wasn't his answer to his problems. That was just his problems to his problems. We have to realize that God knows what they're, what he's doing. God, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, goes and he gives us X, Y, and Z. And he gives our neighbor X, Y, and Z. You know, want to know why? Because he knows exactly what we need. We think we know better. And you know what? Yes, we go and we dive and we pray and we should. We should dive and we should pray and that God should give each and every single one of us everything that they ask for and more. And it should be only for the good. But we have to realize that what does God does end up giving us, that is because God decided this is good for you and this is not good for you. So I'm giving you this now and this I'm going to give you later. We have to realize, we have to appreciate what we have. We have not $5 million. We have $5 billion. We have so much. We have a working body. We have the ability to go and to speak. We have the ability to love. We have the ability to pray. We have the ability to learn. We have so much to be thankful for. Yes, we're not asking for any poverty. Yes, we're not asking for any difficulties and monies. And Bezat Hashem HaKadosh Baruch Hu only bless us with an endless amount of wealth and really endless. But if somebody is going through something difficult, we have to stop. We have to take a step back. And we have to realize that if Hashem is doing this to us, and Hashem knows exactly what we need. And if this is what we need, then we say, Thank you God for giving me everything that you have given me. And with that, we'll open two questions. Okay, so we had a few questions that came in.
Question number one. Practically speaking, how should we balance Hishtadlut and Bitachon when one does not have money to pay bills? We can do, we can do put in lots and lots of effort to try to make some money and borrow money from others, etc. So that's a very, very good question. How much effort do we need to put in? So with this, first of all, we have to go and we have to go back to our class that we gave about effort and Hishtadlut, which I strongly recommend. That's a class that you have to, you know, repeat. But even without that, what we have to do is we have to do our our effort. We have to do our basic effort. The question is how much above our basic effort that we need to do. So if you have a high level of emunah and bitachon, the more emunah and bitachon, the less effort that you will need to do in that, you know, in that area. Regarding, you know, borrowing money and how far we have to go, that is a very, very personal question and depends on the situation at, at hand. But what we need to do is we need to do our emunah bitachon. And by the way, I do want to do a, a specific class when it deals with money on effort and money and specifically on this topic and B'zal Hashem hopefully with God's help we will be able to do that uh, so stay tuned for that but until we do that we have to do our effort we have to do our shadlut physically and spiritually and after we do that after that it's all in God's hands do you want to go above and beyond? depends on the case by case basis please speak to your local orthodox rabbi next question what is the proper perspective for single girls to look for a husband in terms of financial means? Ooh, excellent question. Girls often have the desire to marry someone who is learning, but then the couple often gets into financial hardships and lives paycheck to paycheck since they only start earning money later on. So maybe it's best to marry someone who is part-time working and part-time learning. Does it depend on every specific girl's level of emuna? This is like, I'm not going to mention you out loud, but... You could give classes based on this question. This you could you like I don't know if you realize that, but even in your question, you already gave your answer. So that's amazing, Bo Hashem. So the let, let's deal with this, you know, step by step. You know, a, a girl is going and she's dating. She she wants to start dating, or she's dating, you know, guys to get married. What she should look for? Let's say she should look for a learning guy. She should look for a guy that's that's working. So it depends really on the girl. It really depends on the girl. Some girls, you know, they can't live the cola life for whatever reason. So fine. So you get a working guy. Obviously, this goes without saying that the cola guy, the working guy is going and his Kovei team is going and he's learning to ah, that you don't even touch with a 10-foot pole somebody who is not Kovei team, somebody who is not learning to ah every single day. But let's say you're going and you are, you want to marry somebody who is in cola, who's learning. So, and you're nervous about what are you going to do? You're going to live paycheck to paycheck, you live month to month. So I want to share with you, you know, things that I have learned personally throughout the years. And that is you have a girl that marries a guy that's working. And her best friend marries a guy that's learning. And in the beginning, the guy that's working, he's making a little bit of money. He doesn't have his own business. Whatever he's working, he's making some money. And the girl whose husband's learning, call barely making ends meet. And you fast forward 10 years down the line. Meanwhile, 10 years down the line, the guy on Cole decides that he know, now he needs to go, with the open, up into, go into the workforce and he starts going into the workforce. And I can't tell you how many times I see it. It's, it's beautiful and sad at the same time. But how you have a guy who is learning, who hasn't been in the workforce, workforce force, and all of a sudden jumps into the work, workforce, force, law, words, English, okay? He jumps into the work workforce and he's making 10 times more what the guy who was working for the past 10 years. And I can't tell you how many times I see it. You have guys that are learning and all of a sudden they decide they're going to work and they're making tremendous amount of money. Then you have guys that are working and they're still making the same amount of money that they made 10 years ago. So you really can't judge 
you know, somebody who's going to go and decide, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to find the guy who is working because I can't. doesn't mean that you're going to live a, left, uh, a wealthy lifestyle. Then you got somebody who's on kolal. It doesn't mean that you're going to live a poor lifestyle. At the end of the day, everybody, everybody's panasah comes from Shemaim, comes from heaven. So it does depend on the girl's level. If the girl is able to handle a kolal lifestyle, then tavola chem bracha. But, you know, like, may a blessing come upon you, and it's amazing, and you'll be able to live a very successful, amazing life. But some people are not able to do that. They're not able to live like that. They need to have a working guy. And that's fine. That's normal. So you find the working guy. Again, that's Kovea, that's Kovea team. But it really depends on the specific girl. You can't put a girl who's not interested in the guy that's learning with a guy that's learning. It's just not going to work. At the same point in time, you have a girl that wants a guy that's learning. They're going to have the most amazing marriage. Unbelievable. So it really does depend on the girl's level and also the guy's level. Okay, we have one more question over here. This question is not on the topic we discussed, never a problem. Uh, but I have a question about the rainbow. Why did Hashem make the sign that He wants to destroy the world to be such a beautiful rainbow? Wouldn't it make more sense to make it a more sad sign, a less beautiful, since we should feel sad that Hashem is angry with us? So that's a very, very, very good question. The question is like, the rainbow, you look at it, it's beautiful, it's amazing. So why is it a sign that, you know, Hashem would destroy the world? Why isn't it like a more of a sadder sign? So when I was actually reading your question, I was thinking like, what is a sad sign? Like imagine... Like there will be a skull that comes in the clouds, you know, like this is the sign that God wants to destroy the, you know, the world. Like what would be the correct sign of it? But, you know, but I, I think the answer is actually very different. The answer is, is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is with infinite mercy. Yes, there is something called Gehenom. There is hell. There is something that a person has to suffer and a person has to go through punishment if a person deserves it and a person doesn't do tshuva. We have to realize and we have to live up to it that if a person messes up and you don't do tshuva, there is a very, very dark, scary path ahead of you. But at the same point in time, we have to realize that this dark, scary path is coming from a loving father. Meaning that a lot of people, they look at Gehenom, they look at hell as, you know, purgatory, as God is so angry, so upset with you, that He's going to make you burn. He is going to make you suffer. He is going to make you pay for what you have done. But that's not the correct outlook. The correct outlook, yes, unfortunately, we have, if somebody needs to go to Gehenom, they need to go to Gehenom. They need to go to get hell to go and to get purified. But where does this come from? This stems from a loving father. Who goes, they, you go to get home to get purified, to go and to get fixed. Don't get me wrong, this is not a joyride. You shouldn't be like, okay, fine, I have a loving father, I'll go. No, 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 no. This should not be or be like, okay, fine, I'll go there. At all costs, you want to avoid this path. You want to avoid a path of suffering. But we have to realize that even though there is suffering in this world, and even though there are difficulties in this world, it's coming from one loving father. So maybe we could give this chidush on why the rainbow is so beautiful. It says, yes, God wants to destroy us. But how does God show us that wants to destroy us? It's through something so beautiful. Because deep down, God says, I don't want to destroy you. I want you to do tshuva. That's what I'm showing you the rainbow for. Do tshuva. Come back to the path of the Torah. Come back to the path of mitzvot. So when we look at it, we can see, look at how we have a loving father. He wants to destroy us, but he says, listen, but I want you to come back. Can you please come back? Look at how beautiful. Look at how much I love you. Look at how much I care about you. Okay. With that, it looks like it is our final question. So with that, we wish everybody to have an amazing, successful, 
not Rosh Chodesh, which is a month, not a year, but most amazing, successful life, spiritually, physically, emotionally, intellectually. Bachot should be upon all of us, ad die. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.